Are your clients asking about the employee retention credit, R&D tax credits, cost segregation, energy credits or deductions, or the work opportunity credit? Do you lack answers or expertise in your firm to serve these specialty tax incentives? Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, TriMerit, later in the episode. If you'd like to earn CPE credit for listening to this episode, visit earmarkcpe.com. Download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Continuing education has never been so easy. And now, on to the episode. This is Oh My Fraud, a true crime podcast where when our criminals go to trial, there are no bloody gloves. <laughs> I'm Caleb Newquist. And I'm Greg Kite. Hey, Greg, have you ever been sued? Like uh, in, a, in the in a court of law? Or have you ever been to small claims, anything like that? I, I Not personally. I've never been sued personally. But uh, the company that I work for, we we have had multiple threatened lawsuits, so... As I've said this before on the podcast, so a lot of people already know this. I'm a controller for a group of medical office buildings. And so these medical office buildings have had some, some yeah, there's been some saber rattling with lawyers that have happened with uh, tenants and even more so with former tenants. But everything's been settled like long before they've gone to court and even uh, long before they get even that unwieldy. There was this one time we had a we had a uh, an imaging center in one of our medical office buildings. So they did like MRIs and CAT scans and stuff like that. And yep. imaging was in their name, and they moved out of our building. They went probably a half a mile away, and they set up shop there. Uh, but our building still had the word imaging on the building, and they sued us to take. Well, they threatened to sue. They start. They 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 initially they. Yeah, initiated legal action against us to remove this sign. And I, the first letter that came from their attorney, I went to our attorney and was like, do we have to do this? And he's like, no. And I was like, cool, I didn't think so. So I just threw the letter away. But then, listen, <laughs> the best. As, soon, That's the best. As, soon, as soon as he starts doing like actual legal shit, then I've got to do actual legal shit in response. And it took like it took like no time at all for the legal bills that we accumulated to to just r- interact with this guy who was full of shit like the legal yeah. bills far exceeded the cost it would have taken us that it would have cost just to to change our signage on our building and so w- as soon as i saw that i i started going hey hey white flags knock it off we'll change the damn sign not because we have to but because this is ridiculous what's happening yeah uh let me ask you from in your personal experiences with this, was it stressful for you or just like, this is just the job? Like, this is just part of the thing. Or did you, did you like, did you take on some of the stress? It's hugely stressful. All of it. Oh, really? Oh yeah. It's super stressful every time. And and there's any time legal action is threatened against us. It's, it's ruins my month because there's so much unknown and you have no idea what what's going to happen if if you're in legal proceedings against somebody who feels like they're taking a principled stand instead of like a business decision then mm-hmm. they kind of and they got deep pockets they w- yeah. which was really the case 
with the imaging sign on our building, he he was mostly just mad at our organization than he was, I think, upset about the sign being on the building. And he he really just wanted to he wanted to hurt somebody and he didn't care how much it cost him to do it. So when you're in that kind of situation, knowing that situations can be like that, you never know what the ultimate conclusion is going to be. And and yeah, incredibly stressful. Right. Because it's it felt vindictive. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like when I, I have not been sued and have not had to sue anyone. Thank God. Like, I feel very fortunate that I've never been like privy to any of that. And I mean, I, I guess I bring it up because as in a lot of these cases that we talk about, litigation plays a major role uh, in many of the stories because when people lose money, uh, they don't take it very well. Right. It's, it, it can it can screw up their lives, as we've talked about. Yeah. And but one way to get that money back, or at least to try to get some of it back, is to sue the people responsible. Abs- absolutely. And what's interesting is when you start to think broadly about the people who are responsible, that that'll go that quickly goes beyond just the perpetrator of the fraud. Yep. Uh and and it, it, in our in our field, the way we see it go is very quickly to the accountants, the auditors, you know, with fraud cases and and the when we're talking about big four firms, even even well, you don't have to get the big four firms you get to any decent sized firm. And I would even say any firm that's big enough to do audits has probably got pretty deep pockets. So people are going to start going after them. So not just are the perpetrators sued by the victims, but the auditors are often uh, pursued by the victims to be able to recoup some of their losses because those auditors are seen as watchdogs of the companies that they are auditing and specifically of the public companies that they're auditing. And today for this episode, we're talking to somebody who has lots of experience suing auditors, big auditors. His name is Stephen W. Thomas. Uh, He's a partner at a law firm called Thomas Alexander and Forrester. And not only does he sue auditors, he wins uh, securing big settlements for his clients. And we talked quite a bit about that. And I, I thought this was a, a, a great conversation, Greg. Absolutely. Very enlightening. Yeah, very enlightening indeed. So uh, let's get right to it. Here's Greg and I talking to Stephen Thomas. Stephen, thanks for making the time. Uh, the way we like to start these things is just we don't like jumping right into the, to the hard stuff. So just give us a sense of, um, of your early life, your life growing up, uh, where you grew up, uh, what did your parents do? Where'd you go to school? Early interests, whatever, uh, whatever, whatever comes to mind. Uh, we like to start there so we get a sense of all the people we talk to. Okay. Uh, I was born in Atlanta, Georgia. When I was about eight, um, my family moved to a little bitty town in Southwest Missouri called Carl Junction, Missouri. It's about 1,500 people, no stoplight kind of place, kind of a farming community, not too far from the big metropolis of Joplin, Missouri, which at that time had about 35,000 people, I think, in it. And uh, I grew up in Carl Junction. I was uh, the first, one well, the first person, my, my parents didn't go to college, so my mom uh, stayed at home with us, and my dad he did various, he's worked in what's the printing business, like 
Like, have you ever bought like macaroni? It comes in those bags or sometimes paper, like they wrap uh, Burger King sandwiches in. And he started out, I think, as slitter helper where they cut it. Then he became a slitter operator. Then he became a press helper. Then he became a pressman with the big presses. They made it. Yeah. And eventually worked himself up to uh, when I was living there, I think he was assistant plant manager. And so that's what he did. But for we, uh, uh, most of those years, you know, we, we, let's, let's put it this way. We had a great big garden and we ate out of that garden and we canned that food and we ate that in the winter. Yep. So Missouri is a place where in South Missouri it gets crazy cold, like, you know, single digits. Oh, wow. Not a lot of snow. Then it gets really hot in the summer. So my brother and I, we, you know, we had to do stuff like get up and, you know, go break the water and carry water in buckets for the, you know, we had some chickens and that kind of thing. And uh, so that was my early life. It's actually a really good place to grow up. Um, if you know, small town and my, do. it's interesting before we got started, you mentioned uh, stand-up comedy. My older brother, he was a big, he was a big deal because he was valedictorian of our little high school and uh -huh. that got him a scholarship to the University of Missouri. Nice. And that was a really big deal in my family because, you know, no one, no one had been to college before. And my brother went up there for one semester and he came home at Christmas and he said, uh, I'm going to drop out of school and I'm going to do one man shows at like high schools in okay. um, Dakota, North and South Dakota. Uh -huh. My parents uh -huh. were freaked. <laughs> but my brother did it and he uh -huh. went on to become, he was a stand up comic for, I don't know, 15 years or 20 years. And eventually he uh, moved to LA. And nice. that's what happened to me. I started out on a football scholarship at a little college in uh, Joplin, Missouri, called Missouri Southern State College. And then I transferred. Once I figured out I wasn't going to be playing quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys, <laughs> uh, I transferred to the University of Missouri, Kansas City. And then I went to Duke to law school. And by then, my brother was living in LA and uh, um, doing stand up. And so I, uh, I worked in LA and New York in the summers, like you do in law school, and I chose LA. And so I started working in the in the uh, LA office of Sullivan and Cromwell, which is a big New York firm. And uh, what attracted me to LA is they were there's only like a partner and two associates. So I started out there, and one of my contemporaries in New York were you know on you know basically looking at documents for three or four years. I was. Uh, you know, I did a bunch of depositions and a little a trial in Delaware and various things I got to do early on there. Nice. And so that worked out good. My brother yeah. eventually became the head writer of Days of Our Lives. No so, kidding. Oh, that's yeah. oh, interesting. TV writing jobs. That's a that's a cushy gig. That's sort of where, uh, where I mean, a lot of comedians are, are striving for that, but I don't know if their sights are on daytime soaps. But you know, get yeah. get what you can. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it turned out so. But Stephen, what did you just curious? So, Duke was law school. I'm assuming. What did you study when you're in that uh, that college in Joplin? Uh, I was a psychology major. Ah, very interesting. Yeah, and and do you feel like that? In because uh, I've got a buddy who's who was a psychology major. He did he did one year of uh, he he thought he wanted to get his doctorate 
in like research psychology did one here that and was like, oh, this is horrible. So he went back and cut his MBA. But um, but it's it's very interesting because his background in psychology still very much uh, informs a lot of what he does to this day. He actually has a job in marketing and he feels like that transfers very well to marketing. I've got to assume the same thing is similar for uh, for lawyers and for litigation. Do you, do you feel like you dip into that background a fair amount for what you do today? I, I certainly did in my early years when we were first trying cases. I think it depends on what kind of psychology you focus on because there's lots and lots of theory but there's there's a real lessons in psychology about sort of the scientific method and how you actually attest and apply it to real behavior. And I okay. think that's done me well, done me well as doing uh, being a traveler. Nice. So those early days at uh, at Sullivan and Cromwell and, and for the listeners who aren't familiar, Sullivan and Cromwell is a very old, prestigious law firm. I don't remember the year of the founding. Stephen, you can probably tell us the year of the founding. But like, what were your what was the the early days uh, at Sullivan? What were those like, and and how did you kind of find your way there? Those were good times. I mean, it was really good to me to go to the small office where you have way more responsibilities than the big office, and also just a smaller group of people. You know, I was you know from a small town, so it was already a lot to be moving to Los Angeles, and I yeah. think. When I started, there was four or five of us in litigation, and there was only 20-something people in the whole office. So the small group, I think, was better for me to transition to that. And I think the people there were really nice, and you know, we worked really, really hard, mm-hmm. and I got great experience. So yeah, no, I enjoyed it. Nice. And then you, you made partner at uh, Sullivan and Cromwell, and uh, what uh, we know, we're somewhat familiar with the process that it takes to become a partner at an accounting firm. I've got to assume it's similar with a law firm, and I also got to assume it's a big deal. But like, how did was there like a process? What did it take for you to make partner uh, at at that at the law firm? There was it just the putting in the time and keeping the FaceTime with the other partners. Well, you know, I didn't have that much. FaceTime really with other partners since I was in LA. Oh, right. Um, I mean, I think there was probably 40 or so first years that started with me in litigation. I don't really know, maybe 25. And I think at the end of the day, two of us made partner. So I think a lot of that is self-selection. You just got to stay there, right? Right. You know, what is yeah, that? Yeah. Everything is just showing up. But I, I think at a place like Sullivan and Cromwell, where, you know, as you said, like, they sort of get the top people from the top law school, at least grade wise. I think what happens when you get there is, you know, everyone's got good grades. Everyone's from these law schools. The difference for me was, you know, here I was a small town public school kid. And most of the other people were, you know, private high school or boarding school or something like that. And, and you know, their parents have been in lawyers or something like that. So for me, it was you know, more about trying to perform, like take, you know, take the opportunity you had and do a good job, whatever it was they were giving you to do. Right. Well, it sounds like you probably had a great role model with your dad who started, it sounds like pretty much at the bottom of the the rung at his factory and just through dedication, diligence, hard work was able to become the assistant plant manager. Is that, did you feel like you applied some of that same sort of mentality to, to your time at the, the law firm? 
I, I think that's exactly what happened to me, not just in law, but basically everything I do in life. I mean, I learned mm. from my dad hard work. And, yeah. you know, that's uh, that's something that you take with you your whole life. I mean, right. he, I try to teach my kids sort of the same thing. I mean, my dad was basically just a couple of rules, you know, if you're, whatever you do, work hard at it. And if you give your word, keep it. You know, I mean, that's what he taught me. And that's what I try to teach my kids. Nice. And and did how many times when uh, when when some of your boarding school, uh, private high school uh, comrades started uh, bitching about work, were you like these silver spoon assholes never had to get up at 5 a.m. and break water to take it to the chickens? Was it? <laughs> I, I would say that was almost every day. I mean, <laughs> I, I in with a, a bit of a chip on my shoulder, you know, and. I was, you know, I'll show these rich kids kind of thing. And, you know, probably a lot of that was just in my own head. But, you know, you, you find what helps you do well. And, uh, you know, everybody, you know, I have, I have nothing bad to say about Sullivan and Cromwell. People were super nice to me there. And uh, I really enjoyed my time there. But, you know, people who have, you know, they all have similar backgrounds. And you try to take what makes you different and make it work for you. And, you know, that's the way I looked at it. This episode of Oh My Fraud is sponsored by TriMerit. It seems like every week a new questionable ERC mail pops up offering small businesses a way to get $26,000 from the government for each one of their employees. We've all seen Twitter ads, Facebook ads, ads in podcasts, ads on Instagram, ads on TV shows, and I even personally know a guy here in Utah who's been charged with fraud for false ERC claims totaling $11 million. These questionable ERC mills are coming hard after your clients. If they haven't reached them already, they will soon. And based on the stories I've been hearing from accountants, the IRS will be reaching out to them soon too. This is why when it comes to ERC, it's important to have the right people, the right process, and the right partner. Introducing TriMerit. TriMerit is a team of CPAs, engineers, and attorneys that function as an extension of your tax advisory team. They can help your clients with ERC, R&D tax credits, cost segregation, energy credits or deductions, and the work opportunity credit. And working with them is as easy as one, two, three. One, they offer a no-cost feasibility analysis. Two, they document all tax incentive studies to ensure that your clients meet all requirements. And three, they offer audit representation to ensure your clients aren't left hanging if audited by the IRS. To learn more about adding TriMerit to your team, head over to ohmyfraud.promo slash TriMerit. That's ohmyfraud.promo forward slash T-R-I-M-E-R-I-T. Gotcha. What what sort of specializations? I mean, I got it. I don't know uh, Sullivan Cromwell very well. I'm not sure if the firm itself has like a niche and a specialty. It sounds like you do. Uh, well, well, it sounds like the firm you created does. Did they have a specialty? Did, did your firm have to create? Did your firm create that niche, or did you develop your spe- your your like unique and valuable uh, skills? Uh, on your own with what you were like, you know, like you said, with what you were learning to, to stand out in the, in that environment. 
Well, Sullivan and Cromwell is, you know, an, an old line firm and they represent, you know, big companies there. At least when I was there, their major uh, clients were like Goldman Sachs and, and in there, they were always on the defense side. And so okay. that's the way I came up at Sullivan and Cromwell was doing on the defense side. And then one day a client that I had had, he reached out to me and he bought a company in Texas and he was concerned that, you know, something wasn't right there. Maybe that the books had been cooked or something. Hmm. And he said, so, you know, we only we're, we're going out of business. So I got all these lenders. I want you to go down to uh, Dallas and, you know, figure out what's going on, meet with these people. So I was at that point, I was think I had just made partner and I went down to Dallas and I walked into one of these, uh, I would say, Texas sides conference rooms of the table that seemed to go on forever. And uh, there was a whole bunch of people in there. I'd come with the CEO of the company and uh, I went over and got some coffee and turned around and realized there was only one chair left and it was at the head of this long table. So I went over and sat down in the chair and looked around to see what was going to happen next. And I realized that they were all looking at me and I was one who was supposed to be talking. <laughs> oh, um, gotcha. So I started talking and these big banks started talking and they were shouting. And after a little bit, I figured out that, uh, you know, something wasn't something wasn't really right here. And we started investigating and determined that there was a real this there was a real fraud here and there were some real claims to be brought. But my client, he didn't want to pay the way Sullivan and Cromwell normally charge, which was sort of by the hour. And so he told me he wanted me to take on a contingency. But at the time, Sullivan and Cromwell had a written fee policy. And that written fee policy said no contingencies. So I was like, I don't think I can do that. Eventually, I got permission. And that was the first contingency fee case I or Sullivan and Cromwell ever ever brought. And uh, we did that lawsuit and it turned out well. And that was the start of me developing a plaintiff's practice. Nice. Did, did the firm decide that was it was it determined that the the contingency fee was a more uh, lucrative way to to build or was it just all brand new because it was usually defendants that you didn't you I don't, can't see how a, def, a contingency fee would work with a defendant um, was that was that more profitable for the company structuring it like that? Well, Sullivan Cromwell liked it at first, um, and <laughs> okay. then I did an, the next contingency fee case I did was a case we brought against BDO Seedman um, in down in Miami. And we had a, a very, very public trial and we ended up hitting them for half a billion dollars. Whoa. And when that verdict became public, uh, that's when SNC's clients started calling up and saying, you know, what the hell are you guys doing? Suing accounting firms. That's not what, you know, Sullivan Cromwell is a defense firm. And uh, I was, you know, asked by Sullivan and Cromwell, hey, you can't really do this kind of litigation anymore. You have tried to do it this way. And that's when uh, I decided to leave and, uh, and form my own firm. So I just, I just want to clarify one bit. Like the, so the, the case you're talking about, and correct me if I, if I get it wrong, but it, it was Banco Espirito v. BDO. Is that right? That's the one. Yeah. And, and so what, so can you, can you 
kind of summarize that case. I I don't want I don't want to get into all the gory details because I know there are lots of details. But essentially, like how did it how did it come about that you just had two cor- like if I understand it right, like Banco Espirito was a a big corporate client, but BDO is also a big corporate client. And is that how it kind of that's how it came about? Like that's how it like something like that was able to happen at Sullivan, and then the result of it of that case is, is essentially what kind of caused some trouble within the firm, right? Yeah, BDO was was not a client of Sullivan and Cromwell, but Espirito Santo was. But okay. other big accounting firms and companies dealt with Sullivan and Cromwell all the time. So yep. Espirito Santo had been a client of Sullivan and Cromwell for like 100 years. And I was brought in initially to investigate what happened. And when I figured out what happened, my advice was to, among other things we did there, was to sue BDO Seidman, who was the auditor of the business that turned out to be a fraud. But it, when I first got there, the U.S. attorney was getting ready to, at least was considering indicting Espirito Santo because Espirito Santo owned 50% of the fraudulent business, had half the board of directors. And I had to first convince the U.S. attorney that Espirito Santo was a was the victim, that they didn't realize what the other half of the business was doing, which were crooks. And the auditors had told them, BDO Seidman, that there wasn't a, an issue there. There was a confidentiality agreement in my settlement with from way back then. That's basically where I have to stop on the issues of the case. Sure. The, what I what we did was we I'll just talk about the public stuff. We yep. um, brought a case against. After the U.S. attorney decided that, yes, Espirito Santo was the victim, then we brought a case against BDO Seidman, and we ended up trying that case in state court in Miami. And it was uh, it wasn't a it was a negligence case against uh, BDO Seidman for missing the fraud. Gotcha. Real real quick. uh, So I, I speak a little bit of Spanish. Banco Espirito Santo it translates to holy. That's the Holy Spirit Bank. Uh, who's got the balls to commit fraud against the Bank of the Holy Spirit? I'm pretty. Yeah. I'm pretty sure there's worse things than prison time that's going to happen if you defraud the Holy Spirit Bank. Uh, thoughts? I I think that's right. They were a, a Portuguese bank. Espirito Santo was a family uh, that owned that bank for again a long time over in Portugal. They've since had their own issues, not when I was representing them. But I would say that what the jury determined there was that Banco Espirito Santo had 0% of the fault. They put 100% of the fault on uh, BDO Seidman and awarded not just the $170 million that they had lost, but another 340 million in punitive damages. And I will tell you, we tried that case in 2007, and when I told the jury we were seeking $170 million, they gasped, all of them. And then when I told them we were going to also seek punitive damages on top of that, people were like, oh, my God, that's so much money. Unbelievable. I then tried a case three years later after the financial crisis happened, 2008 is when that started, the mortgage crisis, the, yeah. well, the Great Depression. Yeah. And by 2010, when I told or 2011, when I told the jury I was seeking a billion dollars, no one batted an eye. That's how <laughs> much the public press changed the perception of 
you know, the losses and banks and those kind of things just in three years in this country. Interesting. So I want, I just want to recap briefly before we move on. So the, the big case against BDO, that kind of, that puts you in an awkward position with your firm and you said, okay, maybe it's, since we can't do this here, I'm going to go off on my own. But prior to that, like, had, had you, had you been involved in similar litigation prior to that? Or was it just, did you, did, did the experience in that case, is that what set the light bulb off? I'm like, this is what I'm going to do. This, like, this is the way I'm going to take my, my career forward from that point. I would say the one that set the light bulb off was that first case down in Texas, where I, we first did a contingency plaintiff case. The first one okay. I or Sullivan and Cromwell had ever done. And then that was followed up by the BDO case. And that was our first trial. Yep. And then when we did that first trial and we got to the end of it, I would say the light bulb was burning really bright. Yeah. And when, you know, with, with SNC didn't believe at the time it fit with their practice. I mean, I, I, I had a different view, but they didn't want me to do it there. So, and when I say, you know, I didn't really go off of my own. I went with Emily Alexander, who mm -hmm. at the time was, I think she was a mortal lock to be partner in two weeks. And she gave up a partnership at Sullivan and Cromwell to come form a firm with me. Wow. And Mark Forrester, who was an associate at Sullivan and Cromwell, he was already on his own and had tried the case with us. And mm. so the three of us formed Thomas Alexander and Forrester. So I want to, I'm going to do, I'm going to do a little bit of a rundown and let, I want to of some cases that you have tried. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, successfully either settled or won. And I just want to make sure I get them all right. And then That'll, I think that'll give folks a pretty a pretty good idea of just like the trajectory, I guess, of of what your firm's been able to do in terms of litigate, you know, against these big accounting firms where they've been implicated for failure to to detect fraud. And we'll get into that in a little bit. But anyway, the list of cases I have is New Century uh, versus KPMG, Future Select Portfolio Management versus EY. That was a Madoff case, Madoff related. Uh, Taylor Bean and Whitaker uh, versus Deloitte. Uh, Taylor Bean and Whitaker again versus PwC, and that was related to Colonial Bank, and the MF Global case versus PwC. Did, did I get them all? Am I missing one? <laughs> I mean, that's it's a good, it's a nice list. <laughs> you're missing, you're missing a few. You're missing a few there, but th those okay. are those are all big prog cases that we did, and that's a. I think that's a reasonable rundown. Some of what we do ends up in. Uh, arbitration instead of in public jury trials. Mm -hmm. Sure, um, they're generally private. But I mean, I think that's a that's a good rundown. And I think of some of the stuff we've done. Nice. Yeah, well, I've got just just to, to get me up to speed. I have not delved into the minutia of the Madoff case, and a lot of the stuff that I know about it hasn't stuck in my brain because I'm sort of an idiot. But my the the way I recollect that is. One of the red flags with Madoff was that he was using some kind of, you know, second, third tier CPA firm in Manhattan instead of a big four firm. And I think somebody at that company went to jail for his involvement with Madoff. Can you remind me and the listeners, how, how was Ernst & Young involved with Madoff at all? I represented uh, a hedge fund that was that 
represented in, in the hedge fund were a bunch of retirees who had invested their money with Madoff. Okay. And the, and the hedge fund, they invested, and through that hedge fund, their auditors were Ernst & Young. Okay. So the way Madoff worked is there were vehicles through which you invested with Madoff, and there were several different ones of them, and I think there were three or four. And of those three or four hedge funds, they were audited by Ernst & Young and KPMG. And so our our group of retirees that invested, they actually relied on the audits of the windows into Madoff. And so what the auditors claimed was that, well, we didn't actually audit Madoff's company, so we weren't responsible for saying there was no fraud. But because they audited the window into Madoff, the rules said they had to actually go audit Madoff himself. And that's what we wanted. This episode of Oh My Fraud is sponsored by LiveFlow. Did you hear the news? LiveFlow just launched a new consolidation product. LiveFlow power user Beth Melcher of MoneyFit said that LiveFlow's consolidation is saving her team 15 to 20 minutes per client every week and eliminates the use of formulas. LiveFlow's automated multi-entity consolidation is simple to use. You can easily map multiple unmatching charts of accounts from multiple QuickBooks online companies into one standardized report. And once it's set up, LiveFlow works its magic, updating the consolidations automatically in real time, so you can focus on analysis using instantly updated data across entities. LiveFlow can even consolidate financials that are in different currencies, and the possibilities don't stop there. LiveFlow empowers you with flexible, powerful reporting tools to create customized dashboards that meet your specific needs. Build executive presentations, cash flow forecasts, and more with just a few clicks. Stop grueling over manual consolidation reports and to get 25% off your first three months, be one of the first 10 listeners to head over to ohmyfraud.promo slash LiveFlow. That's ohmyfraud.promo forward slash L-I-V-E-F-L-O-W. Yeah. So that was very common, if I'm not mistaken. And Stephen, you can keep me honest here, but like Madoff, not not lots of people invest, invested with uh, Bernie Madoff indirectly through like an through hedge funds like Future Select. And they were they were known as feeder funds. Right. So retirees would put their investment with these hedge funds because they knew somebody or they, or they just had some kind of connection. And, and through that fund, that fund invested with Madoff. And so like there was a, there was a, there was kind of a, a you know, a, a stop in between uh, the, uh, at least in some cases, there was a stop in between the victims and Madoff and EY and KPMG audited a lot of those feeder funds. And they were all around, lots of them are around the tri-state area and lots of them failed. And so that's where the that's where the exposure came from. Uh, that's right. There's really there's only two or three. I'm the names now. I think one of the names was Fairfield. Yep. But there were two or three feeder funds, and so like Future Select, which was a hedge fund or a fund for these retirees, it would then invest into Fairfield, which would then invest into Madoff. And the the position of the big four accounting firms were well. Even though every number we had was a Madoff number, 
we didn't technically audit Madoff. We audited Fairfield. I, I, I think that's the name. And therefore, we didn't have to figure out whether Madoff was a fraud or not. And that was just wrong under the accounting rules. And we proved that it was wrong. Like if you're if you're auditing a shell of another company and all the numbers come from the other company and you're giving an, a, an audit opinion that there's no material misstatement due to error or fraud, then you have to go to that company. And uh, honestly, at the end of the day, I think of my cross, their expert admitted it. Our expert testified about it. And, uh, you know, there was we I thought we proved negligence pretty strongly. Nice. So the the other cases that Caleb was listing, um, it looks like your your client was uh, they were all bankruptcy trustees. That's the New Century, Taylor Bean and Whitaker, and and MF Global. Um, what's the how what just just again to enlighten me? What sort of cases are they bringing again? I mean, it sounds like it's all negligence. You didn't do your job as an auditor, but what? What what are auditors dropping the ball with, particularly with bankruptcy trustees? Uh, well, in those cases, there were bankruptcy trustees or Chapter Eleven. Uh, they're not actually technically a trustee, but Chapter Eleven. But there were also others. I mean, we represented Deutsche Bank in one of the in one of those cases, which was one of the largest creditors of. Um, at largest creditors in in one of those cases. We also represented the Bachelor Foundation, which is uh, against Speedy of Simon, where we did um, allege fraud and proved fraud to the jury and got a jury verdict on fraud. And the Bachelor Foundation uh, is a foundation that uh, represents uh, charities for kids and animals. It's the largest, was the largest in Florida. Hmm. So it's all kinds. I mean, Bankruptcy trustees usually come in when the company itself goes bankrupt because of a big fraud and the trustee recovers uh. money for the creditors. So a good example there would be in um, in the case against, um, I think it was Deloitte or Pricewaterhouse in Miami, the case against there, the trustee actually represented everyone from, you know, big bank creditors to the lunch counter in the basement which was owed, you know, $2,000 out of the bankruptcy. And so the money went from the, the retirement fund to the, you know, lunch counter to big banks, you know, when we recovered the money. So the bankruptcy trustee represents a wide variety of, uh, of people that lost as a result of the big fraud. Gotcha. That makes sense. So, so they're in bankruptcy because they got hurt so bad by the fraud and then the bankruptcy is trying to recoup some of the money that was lost. They go to the auditor and say, hey, if you'd been doing your job right, this wouldn't have happened. And then there's a settlement that helps def- helps uh, pay for the, the – it's money collected to help with the bankruptcy proceedings. Is that more or less correct? I would say it's money collected to pay the victims of the fraud. Pay the, oh, okay, to pay the victims of the fraud, right. Gotcha. We, who are now – declaring bankruptcy because that's how hard they got screwed. Gotcha. Okay. I'm, I'm up to speed. <laughs> uh, Steven auditors, like big accounting firms have been around a long time and they've kind of, they've been subject to litigation for decades and decades. I'm just curious. So, so, you know, I'm just curious, what do you think, how did, how, how have you been able to be so successful? What did you figure out in, in terms of like, I'm going to pursue these firms for their negligence or in some time, in some cases, gross negligence. What have you been able to figure out that's been able, that's allowed you to, 
to have so much success, but not for yourself, not just for yourself, of course, but on behalf of the victims of the fraud. Well, when we when we first did this, and I would say the first case against BDO that we talked about before when I was at Sullivan and Cromwell, um, we knew that in lawsuits against accounting firms, the accounting firms were winning, you know, something like 95% of the suits are, are settling for just a small amount of money. And it was because, in part, the accounting firms were convincing people that it wasn't their job to find the fraud. And when we started doing mock trials before our big trial, uh, we were getting beat up pretty bad. So we were mm -hmm. losing too. And uh, one day we had lost, I mean, we'd lost pretty bad in the mock trial. And I was sitting with Emily and Mark and our local guy who's been on a lot of cases with us, uh, Gonzalo Dorda. And the jury consultant we had at the time was saying, you can't ask for punitive damages. And, you know, you guys should settle this case. You have no chance of winning. And we kicked him out. And Emily was like, are we going to settle? And I was like, no, because we know we're right. We know they, they, what they did was wrong. You know, we're just not figuring out how to do it. And Emily actually is the one who said, well, it's their job to find the fraud. And that's what the rules say. And we then took what was supposedly the bad facts and made those facts the reason we won because it was their job under the rules. And we thought we could convince jurors and judges that that's what the rules say. And the rules really haven't changed since 2007. And the rule act says that an auditor's job is to provide reasonable assurance that the, that the financial statements are not misstated due to error or fraud. And so that's what we did. We changed our pitch. We sold out and we told them, we told the jury, if you think we don't, we didn't prove it's their job to detect fraud, rule for them. And no one said those kind of things back then in any case to juries. If I don't prove my case to you, rule for them. And that's what I stood up and said. And I said, if you don't, and then the, the defendants, the big thing they were hurting us with in the mocks was that it was too complicated for the jurors to understand. It was all about accounting and that had been very successful to them. So we told the jurors, if we can't explain it to you, when you get to the end of this and you feel like you don't understand what the rules are or how to read a financial statement, you think you don't understand it? Rule for them. It's my job to explain it to you. Huh. So those two things, I think, started made a real difference for us. And then the final thing that we discovered was, I, I'll just say it, uh, telling the truth actually is a very powerful tool. And in general, we find that the big defense firms and them, they put their witnesses on the stand and they don't tell the truth. And we prove they're lying. And it really helps us. And we make sure our witnesses tell the truth. And it's, I mean, it sounds hokey, but I've found out over the years that judges kind of just think that lawyers lie and witnesses lie, but, we, but that's not what jurors think. Jurors think you should get on the stand, you take an oath, you're supposed to tell the truth. Right. So they prove these witnesses to lie about what they did. And we prove that they're lying. And I think that's very powerful for us. So I think those are the three things we sort of figured out. And uh, it's it's been very successful. And 
you know, you get sometimes, look, when I'm representing Deutsche Bank, right, they're super rich, right? Yep. <laughs> you yeah. get money from them and they're a victim. They're a victim and they deserve the money, you know, and I'm proud to rep, you know, I'm proud to represent victims of fraud. But most of the time, our victims are the people at the lunch counter who didn't get paid, you know, mm-hmm. or the retirees who didn't get their money. Like people think like, oh, this company went bankrupt. That's bad for that company. But, you know, all those people lose their jobs. Right. Right. I mean, they lose their pension. You know, the creditors, you know, are people that real people that get hurt. And, you know, in every single case where we prefer, we've prevailed, real people have gotten their money back that they lost because of the fraud or because these professionals who their job is to make sure there's not fraud didn't do their job. I think that's what we do different. And it's, it's been, it's been good. So you, you mentioned that uh, one of the, one of the effective tactics that the defense would use would uh, part of it was they'd say these, these guys can't understand they they don't know they're not accountants. It's too complex. This jury can't really determine the fate of my client. That's that was that was one of the main arguments they had, right? Yeah, main arguments is sort of make the jurors feel bad, like you're not going to be able to understand it, and then you're going to try to hold us responsible. You're just going to have to rule for the defense because you can't. They have you can't. They can't prove you we did anything wrong because you be able to understand it, right? And kind of the the beyond a shadow of a doubt or whatever the language is about about that beyond beyond a reasonable doubt um but did did the did the defense ever throw out to you the because because I, I i work i'm a cpa i work in industry and so every year we we don't have to have an audit but we get reviews done for our financial statements and every year when the when we receive our engagement letter from the cpa company there's very explicit language in there that says hey we're not responsible for detecting fraud and we have to sign you know and that's part of the engagement letter that we sign was there were there similar arguments with your defendants in that in that regard where they said hey you signed an engagement letter that said that it's not our job to to find the fraud so baby it's on you our hands are clean well in in audits they can't put that into the letter so they they cannot put that into the letter but what they do put in the letter is, oh, we're relying on the information you provide us and things like that. Uh-huh. And say, and then they stand up and they, well, they used to stand up and tell the jurors, look, they they gave us bad information, so we couldn't. And they said right here that they they would only give us truthful information, <laughs> so you know it's their fault, not ours, for the fraudsters. But we're able to prove over and over again. In fact, we've never not proven it that it's, it's the actual job of the auditors to verify the information. And you can't put some blanket, you know, you can't ask the fraudsters, just promise me you're not committing fraud. That's not right. doing your job. <laughs> right. right. Your job yeah. is to actually verify the evidence, like, you know, CSI. So yeah. the rules are actually pretty good if you just read them and apply them. Right. And the other thing we are, we've been... It's important about, you know, the big audit firms and any any accounting firm doing an audit, which is that they actually have a duty to the public because U.S. Supreme Court has said that public auditors, auditing companies are the public watchdog and that they're what they're doing is confirming that the financial statements are not misstated due to fraud. Right. They have to give reasonable assurance, which is a very high level of assurance. So. 
they the public is responding is counting on them to do their job so they can't just rely can't just point to the client they actually have a public duty and i remember when we first started we this is also in the ethical rules so we read these ethical rules or i actually sat and read them one day and i we were doing a, a deposition of the lead audit partner and in the beginning this is you know 2010 or so i said to the audit partner so you understand you have a a public a duty to the public and he was like what are you talking about what <laughs> and i was like you he, he was at he was at a big four accounting firm and i was like you you have a duty to the public you understand that and he was like no i don't understand that and i said well you understand that that you know people are relying upon you beyond the client right because your financial statements are what you know shareholders and people like that look at to invest in the client and he goes well no i've always just thought that you know i have a duty to myself and i said so you don't have a public duty a duty to the public and he sat silent for maybe 45 seconds which i'll tell you uh, is a long time yeah a video deficit. and yeah. finally he said he said no so then, of course, I pulled out the ethical rule that he was bound by and yeah, showed it boy. to him. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he was, so when we tried that case, what happens at the end of the case, you have a, a you close, then they close, and then you get to stand back up and give a rebuttal. So when I stood back up, the only thing I did was play that question and that 45 seconds of silence and then his answer. And the jury found fraud and awarded punitive damages to us. Nice. So, so was this where, where did this guy work? Was this Ernst and Young where they cheated on all their ethics? Uh, uh, <laughs> continuing education is that is that where he was at? No, this no. Uh, okay, no, he was not there. Okay, but <laughs> Ernst, we tried the case against Ernst and Young and Madoff. KPMG was a defendant there. They settled though. But one one thing we try to do and have done in all major frauds we do is we try the case. So even if we're suing, you know, we may sue more than one defendant and we settle with some. But at the end of the day, we try to always try the case against one defendant. And a lot of times through the years, that's been the big accounting firms, right? Um, because they had so much success before, but they keep. Uh, they, uh, I would say, uh, they kept pressing it for a long time with us, despite after they were going to win the trial. This episode of Oh My Fraud is sponsored by the South Carolina Association of CPAs, also known as SCA CPA. Hey, Caleb, you know I love diving into a juicy fraud case with you, right? But check this out. There's a place where accountants get together and talk shop and share knowledge about everything accounting-related, including stories about untamed financials. Oh, tell me more, Greg. At every single one of my state CPA society events, there's a mountain of practical insights and experience. You get to meet other accountants, share knowledge, and even hear some firsthand accounts of financial intrigue. And here's the kicker, Caleb. You'd be hard-pressed to find a better place for networking. I joined my state society as an undergrad during the depths of the Great Recession, and before I graduated, I had multiple job offers, all from firms that I connected with through my state society. Hey, that all sounds pretty good, Greg, but what else does a state CPA society bring to the table? Uh, they bring lifelong professional friendships, networking that'll turbocharge your career, 
and leadership opportunities. And on top of all that, your state CPA society is an unwavering advocate for you and for the profession. State CPA associations keep their fingers on the pulse of the constantly shifting business, regulatory, and legislative landscapes to keep you on the cutting edge and to protect the CPA profession. And as you know, protecting the profession means securing your livelihood. And hey, wherever you're tuning into the podcast from, be it the Palmetto State or some other state with a lamer nickname, there's a CPA association in your corner ready to ignite your accounting journey. If you're ready to find out why CPA Association membership is for you, head on over to ohmyfraud.promo slash SCACPA. That's ohmyfraud.promo forward slash SCACPA. So I'm going to ask me, this may be a silly question, but why... as you've kind of just laid out for us, this is why we've been able, this is why we've been able to be successful in litigating these big firms is that we, we tell the juries that it's their job to detect this fraud, to verify the information. They don't do it. The juries and the juries find for, for our clients. And so I guess my silly question is why do these audit firms continue to, have the position that it's not their job. Like, why are they keep, why do they just hold on to that? And, and despite the findings in all these cases, why are they still holding on to that? Do you think I'm asking you to speculate obviously, but like, that's, that's kind of my silly question. It's like, uh, it's in the rules. Like you said, it's in the rules and they're saying, we don't, we don't know the rules. I don't know. Uh, I don't need to speculate. I know why. And I can <laughs> tell you the evolution of it. Um, okay. The why is because, um, for a long time, despite the rule saying exactly what I quoted to you, it says they said it was not their job to detect fraud and people believed them. They lobbied people that that was not their job. And that was the accepted view in the financial world. Companies would say, oh, they're the auditors, but it's not their job to detect fraud. They like convinced everyone that it was not their job to detect fraud until 2007 when we tried our first case. And so I think it took them a long time after that to adjust to the reality that, you know, we would prove the opposite. And in 2000 and I think 17, 16, 17, a federal judge wrote into a published opinion that it was their job to detect fraud. And the public company oversight board specifically said it was their job to detect fraud um, and give a high level of assurance. And I believe that turned the tide. So now, although you get a little bit of that, depending on where you are, I I think now you're going to get more of the big four firms admitting with a lot of qualifications that it's their job to detect fraud. But it was a long time. We tried a case in 2016 where in an in a Wall Street Journal article, the chairman of I'm pretty sure it was Price Waterhouse. The chairman of Price Waterhouse had said in a Wall Street Journal article that it was Price Waterhouse's job to detect fraud. But their lead audit partner in the case in 2016 had said under oath when I took his deposition that it was not. And then I wanted to admit at trial that the Wall Street Journal article and 
they actually represented to the judge that the chairman was wrong when he said that in the Wall Street Journal article, that it was not their job to detect fraud. And they were able to keep that Wall Street Journal article out. We convinced the jury anyway what? that it was their job to detect fraud. And then we tried the Colonial case next, which was representing the FDIC against Pricewaterhouse for essentially the same audits. And the federal judge there said early on, are you going to take the position here that you took in that trial that, that it was not your job to, to detect fraud and was clearly unhappy about it? And their lead audit partner actually changed his testimony and came back and said different. And uh, I think that has turned the tide quite a bit on whether it's their job to detect fraud or not. Do you, do you have any opinions about just the rate of detection of fraud by the external auditors? And, and what I mean by that is, is I, I'm, I'm every year I, I dig through the ACFE's report to the nations on, uh, on fraud. And, and one of the things that I've always found interesting is that the main, the main way frauds detected is through uh, some kind of whistleblower or tip tipster coming into the company. Um, but you get down to some of the smaller percentages of how fraud is detected. And, and, and I, I don't know if these are the exact percentages for the most recent uh, report to the nation, but I know in one of the more recent ones in the past, it was like 3% of, of, of frauds were detected by the external auditor versus 7% that were uh, detected by accident. And I've always thought that's, it's, it's awesome that fraudsters are 4% stupider than external auditors are good at their job. Um, what, why aren't the external <laughs> auditors more effective at detecting fraud than they are? And and does all that other ninety-seven percent of of frauds that aren't detected by the external auditor are those are those potential clients of yours? Is that where you is that, are you are you calling the ACFE to get business from those guys? Yeah. Uh, the reason that audit firms don't detect fraud is because they have no incentive to do so. So auditors, despite their ethical rules saying they owe a duty to the public, it's the company that they're investigating that's paying them. So the, the audit system, as it's currently set up, auditors are hired and paid by the very people they're supposed to be investigating to see if their financial statements are um, misstated due to error or fraud. So the, the auditors essentially are firing their own clients if they find fraud. Um, and a lot of times, you know, these clients can be big clients for the firm or big clients for the individual partners. So if you're a, you know, not a partner at one of the big four who has billions of dollars in revenue, yes, this company may not matter that much to, you know, the big four accounting firm as a whole, but to that partner, his compensation or her compensation is a lot of times tied to the business they have and bring in. Right. So, I, you know, this may not be a huge client for the big four accounting firm, but for this partner, it's the big biggest client they have. And if they find fraud, then they just lose their biggest client. And so many times, if they, you know, either fraud goes undetected, no one ever detects it, or someone does detect it, but they get sued by someone that, you know, most cases still against accounting firms that we're not involved in settle for pennies on the dollar, you know, class action, whatever. So, you know, there's just no incentive 
for the accounting firm itself or the partner involved to actually try to detect fraud. And until the incentives have changed, audits are mostly worthless. Uh, in your opinion, what are the firms? What are the audit firms doing wrong? And what what I mean by that is, have you ever said something like, "If these audit firms would only do fill in the blank, then they wouldn't have been negligent in this case"? Or there is there something like that, or is it is it too broad to to really uh, highlight one specific you know, failure that goes across the board for these audit firms? Well, it's pretty broad because it's just a level of you know, detail and effort. But okay. the main issue, the main issue in most of these cases is just not looking for evidence to back up the numbers, right? Okay. So we had one case, we had one case that, you know, let's say the mortgage fraud case, okay? TBW, right? In TBW, the auditors would come in each year and the and the vast number of assets were mortgages, right? And mortgages actually are paper, right? Or they were then in 2016, 17. So there was a vault in the basement that had stacks of mortgages. And as I would describe to the jury, we had a button. So, you know, they, the auditors would come walking in and if they pushed B and went to the basement and walked into the the vault, they would have seen that there are no stacks of papers because there were no more, hardly any mortgages. Right. (laughs) Uh But instead, they pressed three, went up to the little offices that were given to them, you know, then they lunch, they go down, they press L for lobby, they go to the lobby, they go out to lunch, they come back, wouldn't press B, press three again, uh-huh. go up, because the fraudsters, they actually couldn't create enough fake mortgages, so they didn't create any. So if anyone who would have walked into the, any auditor who would just pressed B and walked into the vault, they would have known there was a fraud. But for whatever, I forget, six, seven years, no one ever pressed B, right? Yes, right. So that that similar thing over and over and over that, you know, just not looking for evidence to back up the numbers. Gotcha. So so basically your answer to my question is uh, if these auditors just had not been negligent, then they wouldn't have been negligent. I (laughs) guess that's that's kind of the sum up. Yeah, I, I, I just think for... Just not accepting everything management says, like just right. actually looking for evidence of the numbers. Yeah. And you you and I, you take that as just don't be negligence. But I will tell you, having it cross-examine, I, who knows how many scores of auditors, um, to them, that is often a unique idea. Like, well, you know, they gave me this spreadsheet. Well, yeah, management uh, gave you this spreadsheet. How do you tell the numbers are right? Well, they gave me the spreadsheet. Uh, well, yes, but what evidence did you look at to see that this spreadsheet was correct? Well, they gave me the spreadsheet, right? I mean, I can't wow. tell you how many times I've had that. So do you yeah. and I just, you, you a lay person hearing it, you're like, well, of course they got to look for evidence. But that is a novel idea to most auditors. Jeez. Mm. Wow. So, do your fucking well, job. I, That's kind of the, the sum <laughs> up. Yeah. Um, I just have a couple of questions, uh, Stephen. Uh, Number one, the first question I have is something that came up in our conversation with uh, Professor Dan Taylor of, of the Wharton School when we were talking to him, and it's this notion of private uh, private enforcement is how he described it, and 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 that consists of journalists, uh, litigators like yourself, you know, hedge funds, short seller types, people that are people that 
look for fraud and then take action in whatever capacity they can. In your case, that's of course litigation. In your opinion, is litigation an effective uh, mechanism for holding people accountable who commit fraud? And that by extension, I'm, I'm, I'm including um, audit firms in that. Only in that individual case. Okay. I used to think when we were starting out doing this, that we were going to change things, right? That we were going to prove that it was their job to take fraud, to detect fraud, which we've now done. We have published opinions there. You know, the PCOB is now taking that position. They're talking about even making the rules more stringent. And I, I thought we're going to change, we're going to change this and we're going to make audits actually matter. But even doing all those things, it really hasn't changed anything other than the individual cases we're in. And the individual cases we're in, yes, we hold them accountable. We get money for the victims and we win. And that's fantastic. But has it changed the behavior of the big four accounting firms or the others? No. It's because their incentive is still to keep the people paying them happy. And the consequences, you know, if I could sue on every single case, yes, but I can't. And the consequences or the chances of being caught are just so low that it really hasn't changed anything about how audits are done. So maybe that answers my next question. But to this day, you've, you've been through a lot over the last, I guess, 15, 16 years. You've seen a lot and a lot has happened. Um, you've tried lots of cases and won lots of cases or settled lots of cases. Is there anything that's still surprise that, that still surprises you about this work that you do today like what still surprises you about well i think i'm surprised that it hasn't changed um i'm going to be on a panel for the public company oversight board here in a few weeks and uh on that that panel's about what can we do to make auditors do their job and you know there's lots of ideas all of which revolve around this changing the incentive right? Mm -hmm. Having companies buy insurance and the insurance pays the auditors or like, you know, the FDIC, the way banking works is all the banks pay in and then the FDIC uses that to monitor the banks, something that changes the incentives. And until that changes, nothing's going to change. And mm -hmm. that's what we're going to be talking about. And I guess I'm surprised that that has not changed yet. Um, I will say the accounting firms, they're one thing they definitely do well is lobby. They're super good at that. And mm -hmm. uh, until the incentives change for them, I mean, if you look at an audit and you see it sound by an accounting firm, I wouldn't trust it. Okay, that was Stephen Thomas. Um, Greg, did we learn anything? I absolutely learned something today. I Good. felt like it was uh, like such an epiphany to have somebody who was like, I proved in a court of law that auditors have to detect fraud, right? Yeah. I mean, right. how many times have we talked about that where auditors are, the auditing companies and the way they set stuff up and and like I even brought up with, with Steven, like I feel like they use the engagement letter to uh, shield themselves and to, to protect them from like to to manage their clients expectations of what mm -hmm. they can do with fraud but this guy was like nope i have shown in court 
that auditors have, if there's fraud, it's their job to detect it. And I go that why, why hasn't that changed everything about right. the accounting profession and specifically the assurance and audit side of stuff? It was profound. I mean, cause we're talking about cases when we listed through those cases, cause you know, the stuff better mm -hmm. than I do. How long yeah. ago are we talking about for this stuff that he was doing? We're talking like a decade, right? Yeah. So BDO, the BDO Seedman, the big case that started it all, that was 2007. Oh. Uh, and then some of this stuff was post the 07, 08, 09 financial crisis. Right. So like New Century, KPMG, uh, the the Future Select, AEY, that was made off. So yeah, it was mostly in the 2010s, right? The, yeah, yeah. The TBW, the TBW stuff, um, that was all kind of later in the uh, the decade. And then the MF Global and PwC, that was all kind of in the, from the period of about 2007, all, some of this stuff is in the show notes, I think. So people can keep me honest, but like, I think some of these cases were settled like in 2016, 2017. Uh -huh. So over the course, over the course of a decade, like he litigated all this stuff and yeah, it's, I think what it brings up for me in terms of learnings is, you know, as you said, he, he proved it in these cases that auditors have this uh, responsibility to detect material misstatements due to error or fraud. And to the extent that it's making, that it's affecting change, that change is moving at a glacial pace, yeah. right? Like, yeah. it, like to the, to the extent that people want accountability, you can't blame, especially victims of these, these, uh, in these instances, you can't blame them for wanting like very quick resolution and justice for themselves right. and, the, and whatever. But like in terms of the incentives, he kept talking about the incentives of the auditors, like to change that key piece. Cause other people have talked to us about that too. It's like the incentives are all wrong. Right. And that's what, that, that's what gets us here. And it's like to, to make that key part of it change will take a very long time. And that I think is what we're kind of watching it unfold at a very slow pace. And help me unpack that because that was something that Steven said and I didn't want to bring it up because I felt stupid for not understanding when he mm -hmm. said it. But he said, he said the auditors have no motivation to detect this fraud. And he said, if they do, they'll just fire the client. Did you like what? So what I understood by that is he's like, so we're, we're going through the audit process and if we find fraud, instead of saying, oh, you have fraud, we just say, hey, we're not going to do this audit, bye. And then they don't have to produce any kind of opinion for that client. And they're like, hopefully nobody else finds it. Or hopefully when the next people find it, they're, they're the ones who are going to be in trouble for it. And they won't, you know, who knows when it started. And hopefully it wasn't on our watch. Is that, is that what he was saying? I mean, he's, I, I think what he was saying is what will happen is if an auditor brings us to the attention of a client, a client is going to presumably take issue with it. They're going to take issue okay. with it. Right. So, and they'll say, if you're going to, if you're going to press this matter with us, then we'll just find a different auditor, uh, which is what happens in a lot of cases, right. Where you hear about like when you have these auditor changes, like they have, especially for public, well, not as yeah, especially for public companies. If you change your auditor, you have to fi you that requires a AK filing with the SEC, right? Right. And so, in a lot of times, what you know, you you only and again, you only find out this stuff retrospectively or in hindsight. But like, oh, they changed auditors because there was something weird going on. They brought it up to management, and management's just like, look, 
you're going to make a problem for us. We'll just find somebody else to do this. Gotcha. And so that's the incentive. The incentive is like, well, the audit firm doesn't want to lose the audit client. Right. And that's what he was talking about. Like, especially at these big firms, like say you're an audit partner and you got this big name client and as a collective at, at the U S firm, that big client is relatively of small importance, but to that individual audit partner, it's the most important client it's in the, the meat world. And potatoes. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Right. And so like that audit partner doesn't have any incentive to do the right thing if he or she discovers fraud or if their team just detects fraud, because like that will take food directly out of his or her mouth. Right. 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 Yeah. And, and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. you don't even know and forget about like how it's seen within like the broader kind of administrative structure of the audit firm where they say, okay, so tell us what's going on here. Mm, we think you've got it wrong. And like, and so what kind of like tension and awkwardness does that even create within your own firm? So that's where that's where I think uh, the incentives are all wrong, or what what, what Stephen was tying in terms of like the incentives. Yeah, and and that that's what I got turned around. I thought he was saying that the firm would flat fire the client if the firm found fraud. But you're saying right. when the firm finds fraud and says, "Hey, we think there's fraud," then the client goes, "Yep, bye. You're fired. We'll go get somebody yep. else." And then that yeah. makes sense to me. And that's the that's the messed up uh, incentives because. I, I get it now. You explained yeah, yeah, it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for helping me process that. And maybe there's one listener who also needed that <laughs> for them as well. It was my pleasure, Greg. Wonderful. Well, that's it for this episode, guys. Thanks for listening. And remember, auditor independence is an illusion like unlimited PTO. And also remember, if you're an auditor, do your fucking job. Yeah, just do your fucking job. Jeez. Just do your job. Go to the basement. Look for those. I mean, it's not that hard. <laughs> Honestly, is that that's the that's the biggest takeaway. If you're an auditor, always look around the basement. Go to the just basement. Look, see what's in the just go and look in the basement. What, what it's gonna take too much of your time? Just go look in the basement. Right. So Caleb, where can people find you out there in the internet if they wanna if they wanna interact with you directly? Still on Twitter at cnewquist i'm also on linkedin backslash caleb newquist greg where are you yeah yeah i'm still on the the uh the wasteland of twitter even though it seems like it's just me when i go on there it's me and a couple of tumbleweeds and that's about it but yeah i'm at greg kite on twitter seems like linkedin my least favorite of the social medias is the one that's really pulling pulling out these days uh and that's greg kite cpa is where you can find me there uh and also Please remember that if you would like to uh, interact with us here collectively, you can always send us an email. And Caleb, what is that email address? Oh, my fraud at earmarkcpe.com. Wonderful. Oh, my fraud is written by Greg Kite and myself, our producer, Zach Frank. If you like the show, leave us a review or share it with a friend. That's a good thing to do. Uh, that's how people find the show and subscribe on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you like listening to podcasts, really. We don't care. And if you're an accountant and you want to get CPE, listen to the podcast on Earmark and you could get free CPE. It's a wonderful program. I'm wonderful. At, at this point, I'm, I'm barely into my next two year reporting period and I already have 12 credits that I've earned through Earmark. It's the, it's the best outstanding join us next time for more avarice swindlers and scams from stories that will make you say oh, oh my, my fraud, fraud. <laughs> <laughs>